this morning we learning to recognize the natural state of pure presence, awakened awareness like this. The Pachibanatama, the here and now, the truth, the reality of now. <clears throat> so, yeah. Thinking in this way is kind of reminding yourself. Sati is the word sati has a sense of recalling, remembering, here and now. Not yesterday, what happened yesterday, or what you might project into the future. I was, years ago I found that just the reflecting on experience is always now. Where, say, the, the uh, conditioned mind always uh, is doing something to experience, looking forward to experiences in the future. Remember in my youth, you know, looking forward to some event, uh, going to a restaurant and anticipating this, this, you know, some pleasurable event. So in the, the conditioned mind, we, we put off enlightenment for the future, uh, attainment for the future, uh, hoping that the future will, you know, if we work hard now, get our act together and practice a lot, we will be rewarded in the future. <clears throat> so this is uh, pointing to the conditioning, the conditioning of the mind, the, the thinking process, the sense of a self. Then I noticed at one time that actually uh, when the event takes takes uh, place, the anticipated event, and it's now, one is so caught up in anticipating the future, you're already thinking about what you're going to do after the meal. <laughs> so, sometimes you don't even enjoy the meal after you've been anticipating it for several days. <laughs> because that's <laughs> anticipation, isn't it? The longing, looking forward to some, the holiday, the beautiful tropical paradise, the holiday, where you get away from work responsibility and, and uh, anticipating this, this pleasurable, relaxed, experience in the future.
So in, uh, say, recognizing this, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with this. Because then, you know, well, maybe I shouldn't plan anything for the future. I should just, the ideal of just letting things happen naturally, just rolling with the flow, just being present. One can grasp that kind of as an ideal again. Once you just live in the present, be in the present, and... uh, and grasping the idea of the here and now and the unconditioned and and uh, then you know kind of thinking the conditions don't matter what, what at all they're just impermanent not self this is still thinking isn't it you know we're still thinking uh, from a from an about the ideal You know, taking the logic of, of say, what we think enlightenment would be, and then, then kind of thinking about, well, it mean I wouldn't have, you know, I shouldn't plan anything in the future. We'll have, you know, won't give any attention, any importance to any worldly things. I'll be beyond all the materialism, the, the coarseness of life. <clears throat> So recognizing that, that the language we use is is uh, is limited, and it you know its function is it's a dualistic function. That's its purpose. That's the way it's supposed to be. And so when you you know when you can't get beyond your thinking process, then you're trapped into dualism, into a divided experience, me and you, past, present, future, friends, enemies, right and wrong. Uh, I had a lot of insight just noticing my thinking process, how one thought connects with another. You're trying to analyze or think something out or reason something out or even just wandering in thought just when you're totally you're just thinking wandering uh, uh, letting the, the associations of one word with another what they bring up and just wandering away the thinking process has that sense of wandering or it has a linear it's linear it's it's it uh, just goes from one thing to the next. So it's a it's a habit also that so we have, like English grammar. We learn, you know, how to speak English grammatically, so that we we know how to uh, when when somebody doesn't use use the the proper grammar, we know it immediately. <clears throat> It's not that any of us are, you know, great grammarians. It's just part of the conditioning process. You, you're the language that you're, you know, your kind of native language. You, 
you you learn it like this. And then in school you're taught how to to uh, use English grammar. So that world of thinking is where we, you know, we create, we create with that, that creative process. We can, you know, we can imagine uh, all kinds of things. And it comes and goes out of consciousness. You know, the consciousness is, we don't create that. We create thinking. So I create myself. The I am Ajahn Tomato is a creation. So reflecting in this way, we notice the way it is. It's not an ideal. I'm not coming from an idealistic ideal of Buddhism, you know, and how, how you should be or how some ideal state of being is, but, you know, using the ability to think, to transcend the thinking process, rather than just be limited, bound into it. You know, like worry, when, when in the affluent societies, we tend to worry a lot. So you, you know, you have even wealthy people who have nothing to worry about, they probably worry more than anyone else. <laughs> because there's always the future in the, the unknown possibility of, of losing, of loss, of losing your health, losing your loved one, losing your property. The future is the unknown, you know, it's, it's, so it's speculative. When we think about the possibilities of success and failure in the future, we hope for, hope for success and fear of failure. And this is all about thinking, isn't it? We, the future is a projection of thought. Tomorrow, next year, <clears throat> But the reality of here and now is the future is uh, the unknown. As a, you know, when I when I use the word, I reflect on the the concept of the future. The reality of, of the experience is I don't know not knowing. Anything could happen in the future. So, just by observing this, how, uh, you know, the way it is, the unknown is, is like this and that. I've known people who spend so much time trying to find out what's going to happen, have their palms read and their charts, astrology charts made and and wanting to find out, you know, uh, any kind of 
forecast for the future. Will I live a long life? Will I have my health till I die? What kind of uh, obstructions are in my chart that I have to be especially careful of uh, in the future? Planning for the future, wanting the, the retirement benefits, the pension, so much uh, angst now in this country around pensions and the future. <clears throat> Who's going to take care of me in the future? And then the past is uh, what we remember. And so the here and now is awakening. This is the present, here and now. So that is not, you know, using a thought. You're not trying to project anything onto the present. You're just awakening to it like this. So you stop thinking and you just observe the witness, the puto the awakened conscious being, knowing the Dhamma the way it is. And the way it is, you know, it's not, it's not trying to define it or describe it, it's like, just pointers like this. So this is this, in Satisampachanya, or intuitive awareness, which has this embracing sense of including everything, not focusing on one thing at the expense of everything else, but knowing in this expansive way, intuitively, intelligently, <clears throat> where then the, the thinking mind, well, how is it, you know? Shall I write a poem about it or try to describe it, define it? Because there is, we feel comfortable by, by giving names to things and, and having it all figured out and analyzed and, and uh, filed, put in alphabetical order. Because that gives us a sense of security, of knowing, of, of of uh, you know having everything in order, neatly uh, contained, but this leaves us in a state of not knowing, of open vulnerability, which can be quite frightening because it's frustrating even. You feel frustrated when you're trying to think, figure out what I'm trying, what I'm saying, don't you? Some of you are probably just frustrated with me. These reflections. What the hell is he saying anyway? <laughs> Buddhism is about, you know, lists of things in the Pali Canon, and <laughs> it's really, you know, the Dhamma is uh, four noble truths, eightfold path. And, uh, you know, it's all, Abhidhamma is even, 
is for more advanced people. Remember uh, when I first went to Thailand after the Peace Corps and uh, meet the expatriate Buddhists in Bangkok and or meet the the Thai the Thai people especially felt they had this sense that that Westerners interested in Buddhism were so well educated that we could start out with Abhidhamma. And so they, they said they advised me to go to an Abhidhamma class, <clears throat> the World Fellowship of Buddhists, you know, because I'm, you know, educated person. Well, you're, you know, you're, you could maybe, you, your Westerners are probably this higher Dhamma, Abhi is translated higher Dhamma, so we don't have to start out with ordinary. Of course, this is rather flattering in a way. <laughs> But uh, I went to Nabhidhamma class and and heard these people, you know, just what I didn't want. You know, endless talking, speculating, analyzing, in a kind of smugness that seemed to permeate the atmosphere. They're also kind of proud of their knowledge and kind of showing it off. And, and so I never went back. <laughs> At least that's how I experienced then. That's what I remember. Maybe I, you know, maybe it wasn't like that. But that's that's how it affected me. How I remember it affecting me, but repelled me. Because it wasn't wanting that kind of knowledge anymore. You know, there is much more sense of, of not doing that anymore, of simplifying, of not trying to to find out more and get more interesting concepts, Buddhist concepts into my mind and know more and more about Buddhism because I'd already read so many books. <clears throat> but uh, this idea of Bhatibhata practice I wanted to see if you could do it, if it worked. I, didn't, I, you know, I suffered too much from thinking. My thinking process is too critical. And it always left me kind of frustrated in the sense of, of uh, empty, you know, of, of having missed the point. <clears throat> So the, then, the, then the initial efforts at, at uh, meditation were samatha practices, which was, you know, anapanasati, things like that, which at least gave me a sense of doing something quite simple, uncomplicated, which was equally frustrating because my thinking mind tends to get complicated and I wasn't used to just sitting, watching my breath go in and out. <laughs> you know, so emotionally I'd get, I'd had to, you know, learn to relax and observe and pay, be patient because the, uh, the conditioned mind was, was a restless, always so restless and 
looking for something, wanting something to think about or figure it out. What is the point of, of anapanasati? Just watching your breath, inhale, exhale, so what? I knew that even before I did meditation. I knew my inhalation. You know, I knew about it. I didn't ever really bother to take the time to watch it. But if somebody said, do you inhale and exhale, I would have said, oh, that's what everybody does, isn't it? That's breathing. I, I knew about it. But then the actual reality of breathing, the experience of breathing, I never noticed. When I was a child, you know, from birth, uh, the first 14 years of my life was very badly asthmatic. I had violent attacks of asthma, where you you kind of you know you you feel like you you can't breathe, so you're gasping. I used to go into the incredible gasping fits. <clears throat> you know, <gasps> you, know you, you just have this incredible fear and panic because you, you don't think you can catch the breath, have another breath. But that is an extreme, isn't it? So, of, of where you're just reacting with fear and, and just survival. Then after 14 somehow it just stopped and I don't know why. It just outgrew it or something changed in adolescence or something maybe <laughs> metabolism changed uh, fortunately you know that uh, you know di- didn't have any after the age of 14 but I never bothered to notice what just breathing is as experience that was quite you know, something very simple, and yet, you know, it wasn't intellectually interesting like Abhidhamma. It wasn't fascinating, kind of scintillating uh, analysis of my breathing process. They'd get down to refinements like the beginning, the middle, the end of the inhalation. They'd go on like that, the beginning, middle, end of the exhalation. And so you kind of minutely examining the, this, this something that is quite ordinary and just operates in its own because you're breathing even you know, even crazy people totally heedless people, evil people maniacs and, and uh, serial killers breathe just like we do <laughs> it's nothing you know, nothing that, it's just natural function in nature, what the body does. But relating to it, observing it from this position of awareness, of mindfulness of the breathing, was something I'd never done before. It was a totally new experience. Or observing the the four postures, the sitting, posture, standing, walking, lying down. So even though, you know, I was used to moving the body in these various postures throughout the day and night, I never really noticed, the, you know, just the, the experience of sitting. It never occurred to me till they suggested it, the teacher suggested it. 
I had ideals of how one should sit. You know, I practiced yoga and I, uh, you know, I could sit in full lotus, things like that. So I had idealized postures. I see the Iyengar book on yoga and, you know, these anger sitting in perfect lotus posture. And that's how you should sit. That was an ideal of sitting. The perfect sitting posture, spine straight in alignment where all the chakras are aligned and the, all the energies are released, normally flowing. This was, this was, you know, an ideal of sitting that I picked up from yoga. <clears throat> but the reality of sitting, the experience of here now sitting, was different. You're, you're using, you're not trying to make it force the body to fit some imagined idealized posture that you that you're attached to but you're noticing the real the experience the reality of, of this here and now sitting is like this I never thought of that before So these are skillful means to start kind of noticing obvious things that are happening in the present. There's awakening to, to the way it is, like sitting is like this, breathing is like this. Which intellectually sounds rather bland and so what. But it's, it's informing, kind of awakening, noticing the way it is. In the, you know, so this is mindfulness of the body, mindfulness of the breath. So that does bring you into the present um, in terms of looking at an object, at something that's happening, like breathing and sitting. But when you, you know, then, but mindfulness, satisampachanya, doesn't mean mindfulness of something, but mindfulness, pure conscious awareness, without an object, without being mindful of something. So in, in, um, when I went to stay with Lung Po Cha, uh, then as I've told you many times before, how what, this kind of Jitanupasana style that I picked up from him, he was very much pointing to the, the way you were, what was going on in your mind. And this I found, you know, such a helpful way of, of learning to live and adjust myself into a totally new situation. You know, being in a, learning the monastic, I was a newly ordained bhikkhu. The first year I'd done my practice alone as a samanera. The second year I was as a bhikkhu, being trained under the strict discipline of vinya and then the 
learning how to, you know, the, the, the monastic routine, the way you live, the daily life of, of a bhikkhu, the alms round, the robe, we learn how to make our robes and do all kinds of things just to support the life and the duties and that of uh, being a Buddhist monk. And then, of course, living in a, in a, you know, having to learn the, the language and the chanting and all the, you know, the weight, the deportment, the style, the cultural uh, demands of Thailand, what they expect and how, you know, how you should conduct yourself and move and your relationships to everything were, so, you know, well, I had to learn everything anew. They didn't do anything like the Americans. Seemed <laughs> My American conditioning wasn't much use. It seemed to, to get me into trouble. But the, the important thing I learned, you know, was with uh, Lumpacha's emphasis on the Jitanupasana, the observing this, this, the, what's going on inside yourself. Because I, I you know, when you're frustrated and, and, and that you, you suffer a lot and you're feeling, you know, you, you don't know what's going on half the time. You don't understand what they're saying. You get, you know, you get all kinds of, Paranoid delusions and uh, you know misunderstandings and wrong views, wrong interpretations. And complaining, you know. Then it was so the 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 life there is so, you know. Ideally, I liked it as an ideal. Wat Ba Pong is an ideal monastery. I like the ideal of, uh, of Wat Ba Pong, the simplicity of it, the naturalness of it. These are ideals that, that I intellectually, you know, approved of. It suited my, the image of an ideal Buddhist monastery. <clears throat> but the realities of living there, <laughs> you know, the simple life can be very romantic. But the realities of the simple life, you know, is, you know, it's to be known in the present, you know. Your body isn't used to it emotionally, you know, the, the, the reaction, the, the hot climate, the different kind of food, <clears throat> the, the, the structures, the kind of re- seemingly Everything was structured in your life. You know, you, you had to fit into conventional forms all the time. You didn't have, you couldn't just, you know, do what you want and, and have days off from it. You know, it was seven days a week. Fifty-two weeks in the year. <laughs> 365 days every year. Leap year 366. 
No, these are, and then watching, you know, from a Berkeley, California past, which is the ideal of freedom and and uh, self-expression and that, the, you know, middle-class comfortable life, the ideals of, of the early 60s into a very stylized kind of conservative uh, traditional monastic form. So there's going to be a lot of emotional resistance or, you know, blindness to to it too. So this is where the awareness, where the Lumpur Chah's emphasis on on awakened awareness of what's going on. He wasn't trying to tell me how I should, you know, I should love this, I should respect this, I should, you know, this is somehow better than the Berkeley uh, hedonistic life that was evil and this is good and none of that. He wasn't preaching, kind of preaching or moralistic. But using uh, a, this form, this tradition for awareness, it wasn't trying to convert me or hold on to me or convince me, but uh, presenting me with the opportunity, you know, it was voluntary, that nobody, you know, forced me into it. I could have left any time I wanted. But how to, you know, I began intuitively, I sensed the value of this, this uh, the containment of it was what I needed. I kind of knew that. needed the boundaries, the form, in order to to just not be caught into these hedonistic habits I developed before this. Otherwise, it just, you know, just endless pulling out, you know, just the, the mind, not, hold, not being contained or committed to anything. You can more or less, you know, you feel like this, you do this, and next day you're bored with it, and you do something else, and you kind of change around according to how you're feeling, following your impulses and desires. Where in the monastic training, you know, no matter how you felt, you still had to conform to the, to the routine. You know, so it, it wasn't a matter of that, that you liked it or were all the time, or that you know sometimes the last thing you wanted to do, the resistance and rebellion, or boredom or criticism of but these were states that I began to observe rather than believe in it's been caught into them and believing my own views about it So, you know, I could recognize that it was, you know, I was living, you know, a a life uh, where I was, you know, I wasn't, you know, it was non-violent, everything, you can't kill anything or hit anybody or anything like this. You know, the the kind of moral quality was, 
was very high. And then the first year was where I couldn't speak language and there, nobody could speak English anyway, so Samawaja wasn't particularly a problem. But the thinking process certainly wasn't Sama. Probably a good thing, you know, where I didn't have anybody to complain to and whinge. Yeah. <laughs> but it certainly went on inside, you know. And I started listening to it, listening to this, uh, this, this whinging, complaining, you know, oh, I'm so tired, why do we have to do this, and another boring day, and uh, grumble, grumble. And it's like Jitanu Puzz, I started listening to this grumbling, whinging, complaining person inside me. And so by listening, you know, changing from grasping it and believing it to just listening to it. I don't like this. I don't see the point of this. These monks, they're all just institutionalized into these forms. They all think the same thing and they all, you know, say the same thing. And obviously, I started, you know, projecting all kinds of criticisms outward onto them. And uh, I started listening to this kind of nastiness in me. And so then this listening to myself, to this grumbling, complaining personality, couldn't get what it wanted, felt intimidated into conformity. You know, you had to, you had to follow it. There was no exception. They were very strict. Like they couldn't give you a day off or anything. So, you know, if you were desperately ill, they could. <laughs> But there they didn't, in the in Northeast Thailand, they didn't even, you know, you just, even when you were sick, you still did it until you just couldn't, you know, you couldn't get out of, off the floor. So they're kind of tough, tough uh, people, you know, they're not, you know, we get a little sniffle and we, oh, I must rest today. <laughs> <laughs> So there was a, you know, a kind of, you know, there was, there was a kind of toughness in the, in the culture. Uh, but it was, you know, it was an attitude that was very cultural because I'm from a different, I'm the kind, you know, from a middle class family that, oh, you know, you wake up with a sniffle and your mother says, oh, oh dear, you better, you know, stay home and, Take care of yourself. <laughs> I'm from a from a, a spoiled background. <laughs> so 
So that's, you know, that's your precedent. That's how you, you know, you, your expectation in life. Then, because that's your cultural conditioning. That's what you expect is normal. And then you worry, a sniffle, it could turn into pneumonia. So, you know, you, the thing, the thing is, you know, we worry about our health and possibilities of one thing turning into something really kind of terminal illness. Where in in the society in Northeast Thailand in the Isan, it wasn't. They were, you know, they could. They were tough people. They were kind of, you know, rice farmers, peasants. That they didn't expect a lot or have much options anyway. They just learned how to get on with life. And so, you know, I was living in a totally different milieu than than what I'd ever lived in before. I had to live in all the time, you know, it wasn't like a a kind of tourist visit to an interesting Thai village to look at the interesting customs that they have and their and their traditional dances and <laughs> it was the way I was living, you know, I had to 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 fit in, to adapt into the way they did it. You know, if I was going to stay there. <clears throat> so this, of course, brings up all kinds of uh, emotional states when you're, you know, you're an, a foreigner and uh, and, and the, you know, the in a changing way of, you know, the the whole quality of life changes. And so the Jitanupasana was a was such a great discovery because I could actually use that in the situation. You know, begin to observe, you know, what what is suffering. You know, so I would you know, is is uh, you know you know, I could blame, you know, the the white middle class mind that I have says uh, oh the, it's too hot too many mosquitoes uh, I feel lonely and lost I don't know uh, you know and, and I could, could blame the the, mon, mon, the monastery blame Ajahn Chah blame the climate but then you knew like Lumpur Chah wouldn't let you get away with blaming you know it wasn't a matter of of, you know, blaming anybody, finding out who's to blame for my suffering, would get to the root of the suffering. So like blaming, uh, I'm suffering because of you, because you treat me badly, uh, that is, that's not very deep, is it? That's a reaction that we, we oftentimes have. If you're insulting me and, uh, abusing me, then you're the cause of my suffering, because if you weren't here, I wouldn't be suffering, I assume. But then in, and so I think all I have to do is get rid of you, and I won't suffer. But just getting rid of everything that annoys me, you know, becoming a, the ultimate control freak, where I filter everything, you know, so that any kind of 
distressing possibility is 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 uh, is pushed away, not allowed in. You still suffer. You suffer terribly because then these things are banging at the door, climbing the walls. You know, trying to keep the enemy out. It takes enormous kind of effort to to just try to, you know, keep yourself from, you know, keep your safety, the sense of safety. So being a control freak is not, not, you know, not the way to be liberated from suffering, having everything the way you want it under control. So then, uh, uh, the way it is, the way it is, is the awakenness, which isn't white middle class at all, is it? Those are perceptions that we create, identities that we might have. But awakenness is like this. So it includes the enemies knocking at the gate. Everything, you know, the, the, the body, the breath, and the and the state of the mood you're in, the the state of your emotions, everything, the weather, the mosquitoes, the food, the customs, the 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 way that it's done here, the you know the everything that that is present here and now belongs here including uh, reactions to it, like aversion, resistance, rebelliousness. So in this wide spectrum of awareness, this all-embracing awareness, including, it's a matter of reminding yourself, isn't it? Here and now, this open attentiveness not forced onto anything, looking for anything to think about or do, but being aware on a deeper level of the impulses that, that you might be having in the present, the aversion you might be feeling, or the the compulsiveness, you know, feeling you, what should I do? You know, meditation can be just a matter of doing something again. You can just feed this this compulsive, obsessive tendency. <clears throat> Tell me what to do. What should I concentrate on? How do I, you know, develop the jhanas? How do I, should I do samatha first and then vipassana? What is the true Buddhist way? What is the best way? What is the shortcut? Some people ask me, what is the shortcut? And then others, what is the best Tell me what to do in practice. So, and I'll do that because, you know, I sit down, I don't know what to do. <laughs> and I should be doing something because I'm meditating. So listening to this, you know, learning to pay attention, just opening to this, what do I do? What's next? Am I doing it all right? I need the teacher to tell me 
I need an interview every day. So that the teacher can say, I know, say, well, this I did, you know, and I did this, and then the teacher tells me what to do next. That, that is, uh, that, you know, that's, that's, you know, what many people expect from meditation. Having a teacher telling you, guiding you onto the path, taking you by the hand. So in some method, like the method I learned in Bangkok, uh, the Mahasi Sayadaw method, I learned that. That was the way they did it. You had interviews and so forth. They had Sop Arom and then you kind of, I didn't even know what that meant. It means to, you get an interview with a teacher. <laughs> But I didn't, you know, I didn't know. I mean, I found just the idea of an interview with a teacher. I'd start planning what I was going to say. You know, so you have to see the teacher, and then, and so you're, you're kind of. I found myself looking, you know, trying to get samadhi experience. What I imagined samadhi was to to have something interesting to tell the teacher in the interview. <laughs> there was a lot of, you know, this. Just the taking the the form and the and the method and interpreting it in in my way in my own deluded way created a sense of you know I'm I, I want the teacher to be I want to impress the teacher so that uh, he will say you're you're a good meditator because I was afraid I wouldn't be able to do it there's a great doubt when I started that I would it be a, I'd be a failure at meditation. So I wanted somebody to say, you you can do it. You're a very good meditator. And uh, and then, you know, to kind of boost me up, inspire me and take me by the hand. Sometimes that's necessary in the beginning, admit, admittedly. It's not that that's wrong. But then in the, but then if if that's what you're expecting all the time, then of course, you never get beyond it. You're merely stuck there. Never confident. Never really awake, but still operating in, in a way of doing something to get some kind of result, to, to be successful, be a successful meditator, to get approval from the authority, from the experts, to prove that you can be, meditate because there's a fear that maybe you can't do it. I can I can conquer this meditation thing. I'm going to let this meditation get me down. I've you know I've done this, I've done that, I've this degree, that degree, and I'm, I'm not going to let this meditation. I've got to prove I can do it. <laughs> Another ordeal to prove how you know how how you know that I'm a winner. I'm not a loser. This is all, you know, the self, the sakya ditti, the way the mind's conditioned. To even hold Buddhism, you know, even interpret Buddha Dhamma in the scriptures. 
from very much this, this, this attitude of a permanent self, getting rid of the defilements and attaining, achieving purity and nibbana. So in then awakenness, which I didn't really get in the beginning, and I didn't really understand what mindfulness was at all in the beginning, I was into samadhi, concentrating, which was a tendency to try to get rid of everything, you know, to stop the this, this wandering mind, to focus and, and compel attention onto, onto the breath through willfulness. Because that's how, well, that's all I knew how to do. I could will myself to do all things. <clears throat> now, in, with uh, living with Lung Pong Cha was interesting because it was another kind of boot camp experience. I've been in the military, <laughs> and then they find yourself in a training, mon- you know, being trained as a Buddhist monk in. Thai Forest Monastery, it's like you're going through another, you know, another ordeal, you know, training procedures. Like in Naval Boot Camp, we used to, you know, we used to spend hours marching, doing this 16-count manual with a, with an M1, and, and uh, you know, if you ever marched out of step, they'd yell at you, they'd call you the foulest names. We used to have these inspections, you know, wear these white hats, and, and every morning you'd Stand out there, and they 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 shout these orders, and you take your white hat off and you hold it out, and then the inspector would come along and he'd look and see if there was any kind of stain, like where the hat contacts your head, you know, there, if there's even the slightest kind of yellowish mark there. So you're all desperately afraid of of uh, you know being humiliated. So we, we learned all kinds of tricks, uh, such as we would wear our, our hats backwards, you know, turn them inside out and wear them till the moment. And then, so <laughs> you learn all kinds of tricks so you can pass the test. And then one day, I passed most of the test, then one day I held my hat out and then the inspector saw this yellow stain kind of yellow, it's not very strong yellow, kind of cream color kind of thing. And he he yelled at me, you filthy so <laughs> And I never felt so like I was just the most I was the dirtiest person in the whole world. How does that's a slight yellow stain in a white hat, and and that's such an embarrassing kind of total humiliation and failure. And and then of course they use you know, you're the filthiest, and you know, call you names you can, I can't repeat as a monk. <laughs> so it is kind of a game. You do you get that it's a game in in the navy. That's the only way you can kind of bear it because it's not really that personal. It's just the way you're treated and you kind of get used to it. 
So you call these ter- ter- terrible names and you say, yes, sir. <laughs> so it's a conditioning process. So you have this sense of, you know, impeccability of, of you know, of passing the test, being a, a winner, because I was in a very good company, you know, so we, we won all the competitions for the whole time I was in, you know. That's it. Now I'm taking that. We had competitions every week, you know, with other companies. And our company was always the winner. We had all these gold stars on our company flag. There's a sense of pride belonging to a really good, you know, elite group. And that, that I think, you know, is very, you know, makes you feel, when you're young, as only 19, so, you know, you feel, I can do it, I'm tough, I can take it, I'm, I'm not this spoiled middle class twit that I was before. I was brought up in one of the terribly polite parents. You know, so we <clears throat> weren't even allowed to say damn it or anything. We were just so utterly polite and never yelled or things trained with etiquette, good manners. My mother was really keen on good manners. And then being in this boot camp with these rough guys was, <laughs> was another kind of total change of, of circumstances. You know, they didn't have any manners. And we were called all kinds of horrible names, yelled at, and, uh, you know, punished. So, you know, learning how to adapt and uh, fit in then say, taking from that experience into, into a Buddhist, uh, a Thai Buddhist monastery. You know, you're throwing yourself, throw yourself into the deep end. Another total change, kind of drastic change overnight. Shave the head, put on a robe, and then your whole life has changed. <clears throat> but then, so the tendencies were to, to use the precedence from your past, isn't it? To see the training in Wat Bapong as, as another uh, naval boot camp experience. Because I'd survived that. I won that contest. How to win the this one? So I could, you know, I could, you know, march in step and obey the rules and, and do it all, you know, learn to train myself the way, try to do the best I could and adapt myself because you do get praise for being strict with the Vinaya and being a good monk and impeccable and and all that so this is you know another winning experience but then what what Lung Po Cha was pointing to was we weren't there to win you know I could start looking at Wapapong as another company 245 wins all the competitions. I used to see it as superior to every other monastery. We're the best. We're the crack troops. We're the commandos, the green berets. <laughs> so there's male pride, you know, in that. But in then the, but then the emphasis was was totally different. To examine, investigate suffering. Now in the Navy, I would have blamed my suffering on the 
you know, the the officers or the company commander or the other men who were who annoyed me and things like this. The Navy, blame the Navy, so forth. But and that's what we did in the Navy, four years in the Navy, we complained endlessly. It was the way that everybody lived. You just blamed and complained. You made a mistake, then you tried to put the blame on somebody else. You learned all kinds of devious ways to survive in the system. <clears throat> so you, you know, first you get so conditioned to say, who's to blame for this? And then you're afraid, maybe I'm to blame. But you're trying to, you don't want to admit that. So you, well, it was, you know, the, his fault. Or then, then in, in life, just complain and grumble about military life. So, four years of conditioning of grumbling, I came out, you know, with this habit of grumbling <laughs> and blaming. <clears throat> That's very strong, you know, very strong uh, for four years of your young life to have that kind of, you know, act on those kind of, in that kind of way, a strong karmic result. So then in, say, in uh, monastic life, the, the suffering though was that this grumbling pursued me after, after the military. Becomes part of the way you, you, re, you react to experience. <clears throat> So in the monastic life, it changed, you know, I had to change from doing this because if I was going to grumble about it, and there was a lot I could grumble about, you know, if I, if I wanted to find things to grumble about, there is certainly, you know, no dearth of things I could blame for my misery. But the emphasis was on the jitta, on observing the cause, the, what suffering really is. You know, where, what is it, you know? You understand it. That means to understand suffering, not to, to figure out why, who's to blame for my suffering, but to understand suffering is like this. Just like the, the, the posture is like this, the breathing is like this. Not trying to figure out how the breathing system works, you know, according to physiology, or trying to make my body sit in some idealized posture that I saw in Iyengar's yoga book, and and then you know use all this willpower to to force it and make it obey, you know, to fit an ideal you have, and then feel kind of inadequate when you can't sustain it, or you don't seem to. To, to get what you want from it. But in uh, monastic life, then the, the, uh, this reflectiveness of observing, suffering is, is, you know, I had this insight one day, very strong insight, where I did see that I was creating suffering around the weather, around the monastic life. That it wasn't the cause of suffering. It is the way it is. Monastic life is like this. Chitters is like this. 
the tradition is like this. So it's like observing, you know, the the way it is, not not in terms of of, of the critical faculties, but just to notice, what, like being human, having human bodies like this, not comparing it to the best human body, you know, the ideal human form, perfect health and and beautiful appearance, but having this 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 incarnation in this form, this body having this kind of body living with this thing is like this. So you're, it's a reflection. You, you, you're, you're opening to the, to the body. <clears throat> letting, it, letting the body be what it is. You're not trying to make it into some, some ideal that you imagine. But just learning to recognize having a, a body Having an old body is like this. Now the body's old, you see. My body is an old body, is like this. And so in this way, they, they're, it's in consciousness and it's received in this, in the, without, without, uh, um, you know, conditions on it. It's like this. Which means I can really notice what it is to to be restrained, restricted into an old body is like this. The old age is a pain, you know. I really hate it, you know. Don't get old. It's just, you know, it's all, you know, life is best when you're young. When you get old, it's a... That's a complaining, isn't it? That's being in the Navy again. Complaining about the fact that the body's old and isn't like it used to be. Or the reflective awareness, it's, it's like this. It's all right. You know, nothing. I mean, I'm not saying it, it's good or bad, but it, I, I, can, I can live with it. This is fine, you know. This is, you know, old age is, is <clears throat> old bodies are like this. It's just part of, you know, part of the experience of life. There's nothing bad or wrong about it. So you're, you're opening to letting, it, letting the body be the way it is. And then you're not creating suffering. The suffering is, I don't want my body to be old like this. I don't like old age. It's not fair. Uh, it shouldn't be like this. I don't like it. And I don't want it to be like this. This is, this is the dukkha that I, cre- that I create out of ignorance. And that it's the, not wanting it to be old and like this is suffering. But the reality of it being like this isn't suffering. It is what it is. Sometimes it's, you know, it's, it's comfortable enough. Other times it's, you know, stiff, stiff joints, things like this. Bad feet. 
Generally, I'm quite healthy. I don't have a lot. I mean, even if I were in the Navy, I wouldn't have a lot to complain about. So this is where the the Buddha used this this first noble truth of dukkha. It's a skillful means. It's to be understood, and which is, and to understand something, you have to accept it for what it is. Accepting everything for what it is, your own moods, your thoughts, your fears, desires, greed, hatred, delusion. Uh, habits, good habits, bad habits, blessings, curses, the whole thing, the way it is, isn't, it doesn't mean it has to be any certain way. It's like this. So that the, the, this kind of liberation is, is being able to allow things, both, you know, in terms of external, the world, the, the people around us, the situation, the environment, the food, the culture, the tradition, then then the uh, the way that one feels about it, uh, reacts to it, how it impinges and the emotional reactions and feelings that it arouses are like this. So this is like being the knowing of the way it is. So this is the puto tamo relationship, knowing, knowing the dhamma, knowing the truth of the way it is, it's like this. And then that knowing is uh, is not personal, having views or or uh, about or knowing about the way it is, but it's a direct knowing. It's what we call jnana.